Hey, welcome to Current Yield. This is Jim Grant on behalf of the entire Grant's interest rate, as a word now, team, team. With me today, as always, Eric Whitehead at the control panel and uh, the great Evan Lorenz, deputy editor of Grant's, Phil Grant, who runs our almost daily Grant's operation. And Rick Rule is with us. Rick is, uh, is basically in charge of the gold price. He is a senior managing director of Sprott Inc., and president and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings and a chief investment officer of Sprott Resource Holdings. And Rick, what fun it is to have you on the air because I, as I, as we talked, uh, chatted about before you came on the air, we want we want some answers. So welcome. Uh, a pleasure. I'm a big fan of Grants, so thank you for having me on. Oh, it is a delight. You know, um, I don't know about you, but the last 11 years or so have been rather tedious with respect to. Uh, uh, precious metal investments. That wasn't our fault, was it, the bulls? Probably not. I, I think tedious is an interesting word. I uh, I found it fairly interesting, if terrifying. <laughs> right. I, I okay. would prefer tedium, Jim. Well, this this is <laughs> Rick. This is uh, this is uh, the theme of this podcast is one of understatement. I'm gonna I'm gonna set the tone right now with the following. This was uh, okay. a quotation from Lord Liverpool about 1810. This is concerning the nature of the credit cycle. The Austrians had this thought about 100 years later, but they didn't express it in English. Now here. Is Lord Liverpool. I think this will help us on our journey of comprehension about the gold market. Here it is. The tendency of an unconvertible currency is to foster the creation of fictitious wealth, bubbles, which in their bursting produce inconvenience. Now, isn't that lovely? That is very, very accurate. Timely. Yeah. Okay. So we have the uh, inconvertible currency. We have let us stipulate some fictitious wealth we perhaps have a bond bubble, like 15 trillion yielding less than nothing. And must we wait for the bursting to get some traction in the gold market? I don't think we need to wait for the complete bursting, Jim. But I do think the fact that I call them they, maybe they, we, however you want to, whoever you want to ascribe blame to, the fact that people seem to be willing to tolerate uh, a negative nominal interest rate, or, or in this country, maybe a negative real interest rate, seems to me to suggest that there is enough faith in the system, or, or if not faith in the system, then fear of the unknown, that the circumstance that we find ourselves in with regards to interest rates, uh, debt yields, and of course, the gold price can continue for a while. Um, the fact that I don't understand it doesn't make it real. Right. Um, the whole concept that I would loan money to a credit like France or Italy or someplace like that, and for once in my life, they would keep their promise. That is, they would promise to give me back less than I gave them. They would deliver on that. It, it, it doesn't seem attractive to me, but it does, I guess, seem attractive to other people. The whole concept, too, that our own president can, at least in certain circles, be popular by trying to drive down interest rates or to put differently, trying to subsidize spenders at the expense of savers is of interest to me. I don't understand it. Yeah. Rick, um, you know, the, the, the trouble, I suppose, when a couple of gold guys get together and talk about the state of the world is we assume too much. We speak to the choir. But let us speak to the, to the thoughtful investor who perhaps does not uh, think uh, so ill of the Federal Reserve that he wishes, I'm talking to myself now, who wishes it weren't there. That is a minority thought in Wall Street, I admit it. But why don't you help us make the case for investing in something that yields exactly nothing rather than less than nothing, and for all the world would seem to lack utility to most of the people, perhaps, who are listening to this podcast. Why gold? Oh, I, I wouldn't agree with the statement that it has no utility. 
and it has utility beyond utility as a medium of exchange, which is certainly utility in and of itself. The truth is it's pretty stuff, uh, and people have loved it as adornment, as a component in religious iconography, in manufacturing applications for a long time. One of its charms as a medium of exchange is that it has over time been a store of value in and of itself. Mm. The fact that it's simultaneously a store of value and a medium of exchange is a different utility. Gold isn't merely a promise to pay. It constitutes payment in and of itself. The timely as opposed to timeless aspect of gold, I think you enunciate better than anybody I know. Uh, it's a good, honest zero, uh, rather than, again, to quote Jim Grant, return free risk, which is what sovereign debt seems to be proposing to us. So I would say to begin with that people own gold traditionally as a form of insurance, uh, as a medium of exchange that isn't a promise to pay, but is in fact payment. Uh, some people value it as a consequence of aesthetic utility. Uh, uh, Rick, the other thing, what do you say about the, the alternative to gold today? There's a number of people who think that Bitcoin or perhaps some other cryptocurrency could fill in the role of uh, gold in our digital future. After all, they say Bitcoin has a limited number of um, coins they're going to mine, uh, 21 million by, I think, uh, 2100, and that this is going to be the new, more convenient way to store value and also to, um, you know, uh, buy stuff. Well, I need to say I'm fascinated by the cryptos. Um, I'm a consumer of currencies. Uh, I'm a businessman and a businessman that does business internationally. I travel. And the idea that there are numerous currencies that would compete to offer me utility is something that I find attractive. I'm personally more interested in the intersection of the cryptos, uh, the distributed ledger technology, and gold than I am in the pure cryptos, but that might have to do with my age. Um, with regards to Bitcoin in particular, what I think has happened with Bitcoin is that its very volatility and its attractiveness to speculators has obviated its ability to, to function as a medium of exchange. When the price of this token goes from $10 a coin to $20,000 a coin or whatever it went to in 18 months, people are very leery to buy a cup of coffee with it because they don't know in their own context how much that cup of coffee costs them. Simultaneously, uh, a merchant uh, who is receiving Bitcoin and theoretically would have that currency in inventory for even a little while has no idea what he or she received in return for the products that they exchange for the Bitcoin as a simple function uh, of its volatility. The volatility might make it attractive to speculators, but it obviates, I think, its utility as a medium of exchange, which is the way that it was advertised separately. The uh, original white paper for the original cryptos talked about the benefits of cryptos in terms of anonymity. Uh, and it would seem now that the promoters of various cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, uh, are looking for more recognition and more regulation, which means that the utility offered up by anonymity is one that the crypto community proposes to strip from the currency. So with specific regard to Bitcoin, I think it's an interesting experiment, in fact, a fascinating experiment. I think it is, in effect, a, a free market fiat, but I'm concerned, first of 
all about the lack of any intrinsic value. I'm concerned also that its attractiveness to speculators obviates its utility as a medium of exchange. And I'm afraid also that the special utility that it has offered to people in places like China and Venezuela, uh, anonymity, is being stripped away uh, in a sort of a search for acceptance and volume. I don't think it will emerge as a competitor for gold per se, in the community that has a use for gold for what it is. Rick, you know, uh, your mention of international travel reminds me of suitcases, which reminds me of our sponsor, <laughs> Away Travel. Well, fortunately, there is no shortage of competition in luggage, and uh, Away Travel is an avatar of the, uh, of the dynamism of the luggage business. Now, Away creates the thoughtful products designed uh, to change how you see the world. The perfect suitcase was job number one, crafted with features that make uh, travel more seamless. And now they offer a range of essentials that solve real travel problems. So all you have to do is think about is where you're headed next and who you're traveling with and why won't that person stop talking to you? Or if younger, why uh, that person insists on crying in uh, inopportune places. Because getting away, capital A, means getting more out of every trip to come. All right, so um, now here are some of the features. That, uh, and I'm supposed to address the ones that are particularly relevant to your listeners. Now, a lightweight and durable shell that's made to last for a lifetime of travel. Good. Lifetime. That's good. Lifetime. A 100-day trial that lets you try any away product on the road. Good. Let's see. Four 360-degree spinner wheels guarantee a smooth ride. Well, smooth ride is something we wish we had in a world of interest rates. But I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, that descriptor does not apply to the uh, short-term portion of that market. Oh, yes, an optional ejectable battery to keep your phone charged. How about an ejectable travel partner? So you're traveling with like a tween? Yeah, excellent. Okay, ejectable. Good concept to bring with you. Now, this is the bigger carry-on. We, well, we, we, okay, we, we, we've done that. All right. So key features. Suitcases are designed to last a lifetime. We, we, we said that. 100-day trial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Free shipping. Oh, free shipping. You know, the Buffalo Bills, uh, parenthetically, offer free shipping. If you're a Buffalo Bills fan... And uh, you know they won a game because you get an email saying free shipping on Buffalo Bills paraphernalia. Fabulous, right? Uh, okay, so want to see for yourself? You can shop everything away at uh, their stores in New York, Austin, L.A., San Francisco, Boston, Chicago, and London. And this, this way product is, is, is fabulous. It's got, a, it's, got a, it's got a shell that you can't destroy if you wanted to, uh, thoughtfully designed. Uh, keeps everything organized. That's good. Uh, easy to carry up and down stairs because it's so lightweight. Excellent. All right. Okay. So special offer to listeners of it's our show, right? Yeah, it's the call to action part. Very important. Quote, for $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash grant and use promo code grant during checkout. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com grant and use promo code grant during checkout. Bang. Bang, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, is a journalese for exclamation. So uh, thank you, away, and away we go. Hey, Rick, uh, assuming now that um, you have persuaded with your eloquence many, many people to uh, take an interest in gold, how does one go about buying it? This is a question that we get here um, uh, a lot. You know, do you, do you uh, if you want uh, bullion itself, uh, isn't that a little esoteric? How do you... Well, following your wonderful lead with regards to travel, I would, of course, suggest that to people buy gold that's attached to a sprout product. Uh, but the truth is, that's probably a bit too self-serving. I think it really is that depends S-P-R-O-T-T? on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you for that. I'll travel. I'll travel with your travel agency forever. Um, I think it depends on who the investor is and what the what the investor plans to do with it. It could be argued, Jim, that given my shareholdings in Sprott and 
the fact that an increasing gold price would do well for my basic business. There could be an argument that I don't need to own gold, but the truth is I do own gold because it enhances my sense of well-being. Uh, I'm one of the sort of traditional gold buyers with gold as insurance, and I own it two different ways. I own it physically in a bank vault, in a, pardon me, a safe deposit box. That's one way I own it, and I also personally own it in the form of a shares in a trust, a Sprott Physical Gold Trust. The advantage of the gold trust is that it trades on the New York Stock Exchange. It's very liquid. I can buy it and sell it with a mouse, all those kinds of things. And there are tax advantages for U.S. taxpayers. The disadvantage is that uh, some people own gold because of distrust in the financial services industry. And having a piece of paper that represents your gold as opposed to holding gold doesn't serve some people's psychological needs. One thing I like to editorialize on when I'm given the opportunity in forums like this is I advise against what I laughingly call midnight gardening, people buying physical gold and trying to hide it or store it at home. I think you exchange uh, one set of risks, so, you know, somewhat more esoteric risks, for physical and immediate risks. And so however somebody chooses to own gold, should they choose to own it in physical form, I personally would recommend, say, storage, either storage at Brinks or some other good delivery warehouse, or taking physical possession if you want outside the LBMA or uh, Chicago Mercantile chain of delivery, but then storing it in a safe deposit box, not storing it at home. There are, of course, ETFs, which are extremely liquid and also very convenient. Okay, Rick, do, Some do, people yeah. are nervous. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Do you, uh, do you visit your gold in a safe deposit box? I do. And do you uh, dust as a it? I do. I actually do pet it. I have to admit that. I I visit it because I know that accounts that are attached to people and faces get treated by financial institutions better than accounts that are numbers. Yeah. And so I, I have my gold in Vancouver, and I make it a point to visit with my bank officer so that I can maintain a relationship so that, say, should I choose to sell it or avail myself of some other bank service that I'm viewed by the person at the bank as a person yeah. rather than simply as a number. That's why as I think that's good practice. Hey, Rick, um, with respect to gold equities, this has certainly been a veil of tears low these many years. But uh, between wipes of Kleenex, one found that uh, the high-grade miners uh, flourished rather better than, uh, than the low-grade ones, the Kirkland's better than the new golds. Is that situation going to change, do you think, if the gold price is embarked on a journey to much higher levels, might not the low-grade miners come in for a more almost exponential uh, bid? That's a nuanced question. I suspect that the answer is yes, but I would caution your listeners from spending too much of their life, depending on how much they're willing to work, how old they chasing are. that alpha. Yeah. I, I have a few comments for you, Jim. The, the horrific performance of the gold mining industry over 40 years is really the fault of people like you and I, uh, gold believers. The things that made the gold equities work in the 1970s were leveraged to the gold price, uh, which is a different way of saying marginality. The high-cost producer had more operating margin as prices went up than the efficient producer. So Wall Street asked the gold mining industry to become marginal, uh, a fairly t easy test to make. Uh, and the gold mining industry complied. They became so marginal 
that in the period 2000 to 2011, when the gold price went from $250 an ounce to $1,900 an ounce, per share cash flows fell. <laughs> that, that took real skill. How'd they do that? So, <laughs> you know, I've studied this for a while, um, and I really don't have an answer. It was a monumental achievement. A lot of shares, to but be sure. Yeah, that's one so, thing, uh, Rick, that's I one mean, issue that you know, we've they, actually noticed in the sector, that in as much as um, a gold mine sounds like a lucrative concept, the CEOs who run the gold mines often uh, extract their own value that shareholders never see. Uh, to kind of quote Mark Twain, a gold mine is a hole in the ground with a liar on top. Uh, certain investors like Paulson & Co. have begun taking activist positions to fix this. Could you give us a sense of what the current state of corporate governance looks like in the sector, and is it improving? Is it getting better? It is improving. It's improving because the performance of the industry was so horrific in the last decade, I think about $70 billion in write-downs, that a reasonable number of very highly paid senior executives were allowed to pursue other employment opportunities. And that, more than anything else, that is the market itself, has gone a reasonable way to curing some of the most egregious ills that the industry exhibited. But the industry really needs to rely on the investors to exert uh, adult supervision. Investors need to remember that they're the owners of these companies, and there's no particular requirement that we ask the industry to be inefficient. There's further inducement, I think, to the investor in the sense that, um, and you will have experienced this, these up moves in the gold market generate so much beta. You know, the sort of median recovery over the last nine recoveries has varied between 200% and uh, 1,200% that you don't need to take extra risk to generate alpha. These moves take place over sort of 18 months to 40 months, and 200% over 18 months or 1,200% over 40 months is plenty. Rather than generating extra alpha, I would suggest that people try to de-risk the beta. That is, at least at the beginning of a gold bull market, buy the best of the best companies. Suppose you took away a little of the upside, say 20% of 200%, in return for which you reduced almost all of the downside. That's what I would suggest people do in the sector. The second thing that I think people need to bear in mind with regards to gold bull markets is you don't need to have this circumstance where the gold bug's wildest dreams or worst fears come true. You don't need gold to replace the U.S. dollar. Gold just needs to win the war less badly. I read a study not too long ago that the market share of precious metals and precious metals-related equities in the U.S. savings and investment market uh, is somewhere between one-third and one-half of one percent. The same study said that in 1981, the same number was closer to 7%, and that the three-decade mean was between 1.5% and 2%. So I'm not suggesting that gold and gold equities will win that war. I'm merely suggesting that they'll lose less badly, that they'll return to the three-decade mean. If that happened, and I'm not saying it will, but I think it will, demand in the United States for gold and precious metals equities uh, would increase threefold or fourfold, furthering the case for uh, de-risking your participation. The upside in these circumstances has historically been so extraordinary that taking a bunch of risk to extend, extend that upside really doesn't make very much sense. Uh, Rick, Certainly for people who are willing to do the work yeah. uh, and do qualitative differentiation, big bunch of words, in 
marginal gold equities. There's not much competition in the space. Out-competing a whole class of investors who doesn't show up shouldn't be hard, but you have to do the work. Hey, Rick, um, where's the gold price going? a little bit about um, supply and demand in the U.S. in terms of uh, portfolio allocation. However, China is supposedly the world's biggest gold producer and consumer. However, one problem we always run into is official statistics from the People's Republic aren't always very reliable. In the context of gold, how do you think about China? We have a little insight there in that we do a reasonable bit of business with Zijin, which is a large Chinese mining company, and several other fairly large Chinese semi-parastatal industries. And I can't tell you anything about their official statistics. What I can tell you is that the Chinese government is encouraging the citizenry to uh, consider gold as a savings product. It was illegal until fairly recently, uh, and now it's being officially sanctioned. Private gold ownership is being encouraged, and there has historically been uh, a lot of cultural familiarity and acceptance of gold. So, you know, we are seeing increasing official sect gold purchases. We're seeing Chinese financial institutions, people like Industrial Commercial Bank of China, backing outward-bound investment in mining and mineral exploration. In other words, it's an official policy of the state to participate in gold mining on a global basis. And we're seeing the state not merely allow, but in fact encourage retail participation in incorporating gold into their savings plans. So my suspicion is that China will play an increasingly important role in the world gold trade, assuming that the, um, you know, the gradual improvement of the lot of ordinary Chinese in China continues to improve. Rick, you mentioned uh, the desirability of, of not reaching for something speculative, uh, given the prospects of a generally positive environment for gold equities. Can you let our listeners know what you regard as a fair sample of high quality gold mining companies might be? Yeah, with the, with the real caveat, not merely the uh, compliance caveat, that I can't give investment advice to people I don't know. I don't know what's important. I want to introduce you, Rick. I want to introduce you, Rick, right now to the <laughs> listeners of this Grants uh, podcast. I think it was six or eight of them. Yeah, I think there's uh, a couple, couple, couple guys named Joe. Uh, there's a few Steves. Hey, meet, meet Rick. Yeah. All right, done. Proceed. I, th- 
I honestly think you begin a gold portfolio by earning gold. If you think gold's going to go up, the first thing you buy is okay. gold, okay. the primary beneficiary. But then the gold equities historically have outperformed the metal. So names like uh, Franklin, Nevada, which I personally regard as not cheap, but the highest quality gold equity in the world. Uh, Wheaton Precious, which like Franklin, Nevada, is in the royalty and streaming business. That is, they don't mine gold. They have a financial interest in right. other people's gold. Although it's gone up in price a lot, the best of the biggies is Barrick a well-run company run by a personal friend of mine who is a wonderful manager and a wonderful allocator of capital, of course. Another high-quality expensive company, I would say, is Agnico Eagle. They've been wonderful allocators over the last 15 years. Importantly, their recent capital spending cycle is pretty much done, and they should start to generate an awful lot of cash. And historically, they've done a good job as opposed to a bad job with that cash. I also note that over time, when gold begins to move, silver moves further. It moves later, but it moves further. The silver bug traditionally has been a real manic depressive, somebody who really comes in the market. And when money flows into silver equities, um, because high-quality ones are so scarce, the moves can be epic. There are not very many good silver names, but the name that I'm probably closest to, or put differently, the name that I own the most of myself, is Pan American Silver. Uh, a reasonably high-quality name, although one with a lot of political risk. Uh, my suspicion is that if you owned those names, I shouldn't say you, but if... Uh, Joe, Joe. Was, if, Joe, right. If Joe were in in conjunction with his financial advisor and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff, to put together a portfolio of those five names, my suspicion is over the next three years, Joe would come out of it pretty happy. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, we're They're very high-quality names. And my, my suspicion is that those five names put together would underperform the index, but they'd underperform the index by pretty much de-risking the account relative to uh, human error and corporate failure. Yeah. Well, around here, we specialize in human error. We don't, even, we don't even have any machines to blame. You know, final pros, proposition for you, Rick, is that we, I don't know, we, my view of the gold price uh, is simply that it is the reciprocal of the world's faith in the institution of managed currencies, kind of like one divided by trust in central banks and central bankers and their judgment. Uh, how does that sit with you? I know the gold price is a, is a complicated thing, but is it essentially a monetary thing? I think it is. I think it's even more constrained than that. Maybe this is a sort of an America-centric response. But in my 40 years in the business, I think the most important determinant of the gold price has been global faith in the ongoing purchasing power, or lack thereof, of the U.S. dollar. Mm. Uh, okay. When geopolitical events happen, I think people use them as an excuse to do something that they were inclined to do anyway. Uh, and I think, the, I, I think that gold has been engaged in a sort of a fight with the U.S. 10-year Treasury for a very long time. And I, you know, it was difficult, I think, in 1982 with the 10-year yield in 15.6 to talk about gold being as viable an option as it is with the Treasury trading at two. I'm not trying to say that the 10-year Treasury bull market's over, but if you value it inversely to yield, which is what most people do, uh, it's got to be much closer to the end of its bull market than to the beginning of the bull market. If you buy the reciprocal trade, that would suggest to me that gold is closer to the beginning of its market than to the end of the market. Well, speak, not, speak, not very sophisticated, but yeah. I believe it to be true. Speaking of the end, this this uh, exhausts uh, not 
my interest in talking to Rick Rule, which is uh, unlimited, but uh, uh, our tape recorder is running out or something, some technical issue here. Anyway, we will thank you, Rick. I will thank you. It was wonderful speaking to you. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you. And away travel, away you go. Until the next time, this is Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. (laughs) 